Denison is a really high academic place. And our guys ask why, why, why all the time. And as they should, right. They, they just, they're, they're, they're smart, critical thinkers and they challenge everything. So that that's challenged me in a good way. Hi everyone. This is Ben Guest. And today's conversation is with Chris Sullivan. This is part three of my four part podcast mini series on positive coaching. Chris is the head coach of the men's basketball team at Denison University. And in today's conversation, we talk positive coaching as well as well as a lot of great specific details that he emphasizes in coaching his team. Enjoy. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to chat. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk coaching and well, let me start there. How so? You're the head coach going into your second year at Denison University. How was coaching different from how you thought coaching was going to be? You know, I, I think um, just looking back in my my you know ten going on eleven years now, I, I think I got into the business just because I really fallen in love with basketball. Um, and kind of what what the sport was able to do for for me as a person and just provide so many opportunities on the floor and off. And I think that's kind of what really drew me into it. I mean, I love this game and I want to stay in it and around it. Um, but I think what's really what wakes me up now every day is, is not just the basketball side of things, but 100 percent the people. Um, and I was really, really fortunate to work for um, the coach who I just took over for here at Denison. Um, was one of the absolute best leaders of, of people and, and kind of cultivators of, of a culture. Um, and like that was just a whole side of coaching that that uh, had not truly been unlocked to me. And I think that's where a lot of my um, excitement for being a coach lies now is uh, X's and O's are fun. That, that's the fun stuff. But the really meaningful, deep down kind of soul igniting stuff relies in the, in the people and the culture side of team building for sure. So the coach you were, you took over for what made him such a great leader? I think two things I thought, um, I think he cared just so much about the people first. Um, and in a way that he was really hard on them and almost, he, he was, uh, this old Italian guy who was, and that's kind of the second fold of it. He was, he was authentically him. He, he was this old kind of goofy, cranky at times, Italian guy and really hard on the guys. But I think they, they always found it to be um, done in a way that they knew he had their best interest in mind. And so even when he was a little too hard or um, almost kind of cultivated some challenges on, on purpose, if you will, um, but, but they knew he really cared and and I felt the same way as, as he was, you know, mentoring me as an assistant. There were so many situations where he just threw me in there as a young guy and said, hey, figure it out. I could tell you how to do this, but I'm, I'm going to watch you maybe stumble a little bit or just work to problem solve. And then we'll, we'll figure it out on the other end, because I know that's what's best for, you know, for you and your long term development. So I think, yeah, truly caring about the people and uh, just not being afraid to be himself. And I think guys really bought into to that as did I. So what's an example where he threw you in and just said, this would be a good experience for you? It's a great story. So I, I got hired and there was still three weeks left in my uh, undergraduate degree and he had already hired me. So before I'd even finished undergrad, he took a chance on the young guy with, with no experience. And he sends me this packet in the mail and kind of gives me a little to-do list, you know, get your Denison ID and here's your email, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, he says, oh, by the way, we want to start to recruit the West Coast. You know, Denison's got a pretty national brand. And he says, sign yourself up to work these three camps and showcases, have fun in California. And, and that was it. Didn't tell me, you know, what type of players we were looking for, exactly how we played and, and who we needed in that class or even how to recruit, like, hey, here's how you talk to parents, here's how you write emails to perspectives, like nothing. He just said, go to California, find the best players, get them interested in Denison, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, a lot of experiences like that where, you know, I'm, I'm, I graduated at 21, barely 22, and okay, let's, let's figure it out. Dive in. Mm -hmm. 
what so there are a whole bunch of different directions i want to go you mentioned the word authenticity and i think one of the things especially younger coaches get wrong mm -hmm. is they try to be somebody they're not they try to be somebody they've seen on tv or they try to be a coach that they had growing up or they try to be a coach they think is is what coaching is about and they're not mm -hmm. the, their authentic selves and as you kind of alluded to, players see through that pretty quickly. So could you talk about, I guess, the importance of authenticity? And then maybe also from your experiences and what you've seen, what do young coaches tend to get wrong when they, when they become a head coach? Yeah, I think for me, yeah, authenticity is, yeah, just, just on the floor, off the floor, inside of basketball, outside of basketball, just being, being yourself. And, and I, um, I know a lot of people who I think kind of change just a little bit of who they are um, off the floor, on the floor. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of coaches, you know, maybe old traditionalists would be surprised at how many, you know, jokes I crack during practice or, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a laid back guy. I'm, I'm pretty, um, I, I, I find humor is kind of one of my, you know, real languages of, of how to connect with people. And, you know, hey, we're, we're going to get our real work done during a drill. But, you know, in between drills, I'll, I'll joke with guys on the sidelines or just just I want to create something where hey, when we're working, we're working and we're having fun, but not taking this whole thing too seriously um, at the same time, because I don't take myself too seriously. And I think I try to infuse that into different areas of the program. Um, and, uh, and and I think, yeah, it's important for your, your guys to know just, just who you really are. Um, so they can see that it's not just about, you know, the wins, the losses, the basketball, but just connecting with the person, um, wh whether they control your playing time or not. I think sometimes coaches in let that influence the relationship with the players too much. And, and maybe even the players allow that to creep in, but, you know, just cause you're not playing a whole lot doesn't mean that, that I don't like you and we still can't connect in a genuine way. And I, I think I try to, um, yeah, just, just live that as much as I can um, in that way. And I, and I think the second part of that too is, is allowing myself and, and my family infuse themselves into the program. We, we've got a one-year-old son um, and we brought the team over to our house to, for dinner the other day. And I think just kind of letting them see you as a, as a human and a person outside of basketball and off the floor is equally as important as just being yourself. Um, and so finding ways to build relationships that um, and opportunities that have nothing to do with basketball. And I think, I think I find that to be really, really important in building that trust and connection and, uh, and on authenticity. So glad you mentioned that because for years I trained teachers, first year and second year teachers teaching in critical needs schools in Mississippi. And a lot of our participants were right out of college. So they're 22 years old. If they're teaching seniors, they're teaching 17 and 18 year olds. And there's this impulse to sort of hide anything personal about yourself. And uh, my advice was always share those things, share photos of, you know, post some photos of your parents, your siblings, your family on the wall, talk about um, your family, because the more that in that situation, students in your situation, players, the more they see you as a full, complete human being, the mm -hmm. easier it is to start making those connections, which are so key and so important and are really the lasting rewards from any of this. Yeah. And so a good story that this happened on just on Saturday, we had a morning practice um, and it was, it was my son's first birthday. And so we finished practice and, uh, you know, the, the, the women are on the door waiting to get on the floor. So I'm kind of hurrying guys up to, to finish practice and, and get out of there. And, and um, a couple of the upperclassmen said, coach, hang on one second. We got something for you. And they went into the tunnel and brought out a wrapped birthday present for my son. And they got him a little tight set of golf clubs. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I'm getting emotional about it now. And I, I shed a tear as soon as I saw them coming out of the locker room. Cause I think that's, um, you know, that, that's what this is all about. And, uh, and I think sometimes we get too distracted by, by hoops and results to, 
to not allow those opportunities to present themselves. And um, yeah, that, that's something that as a coach and as a, a good anecdote for what we want this culture to look like, so it's a story that I'll hang my hat on for shoot 30 more years. That's fantastic because th there's a line I often use both with teaching and coaching, which is players, basketball is going to end for everyone you coach. Maybe it ends this season, next season, maybe they go on to play professionally, but at some point for everybody, basketball ends. But players will always remember how you make them feel, how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And it goes both ways, right? You will always remember how your players made you feel. And that's a perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, and and we, we haven't had too many yet, but um, same thing just down the line. I think uh, just looking at some of our younger guys and as they, they're aging at post-college and, um, you know, my wife, she, I think she, she's looking forward to it just as much as me, but being able to, to go, go to their weddings when that comes about and can just kind of celebrate them as people um, is super cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that down the road. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I mentioned younger coaches earlier. I think that's one of the things that younger coaches can miss. I know I did that. It's not really about the wins and losses, the, the wins and losses and, and strategy and your next opponent. Those are the things you kind of are doing day to day. But the bigger picture is you're developing relationships. The players you coach, you're going to go on and have and, you know, have success in life and, and have things they struggle with. Some of them will go on to become coaches themselves and just being able to be there and be a resource through all of that is one of the best things about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, go just ahead. Real, yeah, real quick. I think one, one of the biggest lessons that I learned um, or kind of about halfway through my, my tenure here, um, we, we've had everything. We, we, since I've been here, we've been 22 and five, and we've been, I think, seven and 18 and, and everything in between. So I've had a good bit of some tough seasons, some, you know, seasons just above 500 that we're actually kind of excited about, like, and some, and we were top 10 in the country at, at one point with a really good team. And, you know, when I didn't really change, my coaching strategies didn't change, like the, the talent comes and goes the shot making here and there comes and goes but I think sometimes like there's great coaches that are fighting for to get to 500 and and I think when it almost felt guilty like when we got to be really good we were getting all this attention from some of the the media outlets in Columbus and Ohio and around the D3 circuits and it's like and we, we've been doing the same stuff for five or six years now nobody was asking us when when we thought we were taking the team to, you know, great fourth place finish. But now all of a sudden, Hey, we, we did a good job recruiting. We brought some good players and like, they're the ones that changed this whole thing. Like we, we didn't really change our process that we try to stick to. It's, we got some good players then then they graduated and then, then we went right back down to seven wins like that. That's, you know, we're trying to avoid that for as much as, as long as we can and continue to, to build this program. I think the next step for us is to, to maintain that level of success, but Hey, we're, we're doing the same stuff. And I, I don't, I don't view myself oh, all of a sudden I'm a bad coach now where, yeah, it's the same process. It's just, you're bringing in different people, different levels of talent. League is changing talent wise and so many variables out of your control. You just got to focus on being a good person and, and helping these guys and pushing them through. Right. I remember when I started coaching as a head coach and I thought to myself something along the lines of when it comes to winning games, it's probably 70% the players, 30% coaching. And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, it's like 95% players, 5% coaching. I think the, yeah. the reverse is true though. I think coaches can mess things up. Um, I think that coaches can take a bunch of good players and really muck the whole thing up. But mm -hmm. when it comes to success on the court, you know, we're not hitting a jump shot. We're not making an assist. We're not pulling down a rebound. It's about the players um, performing on the court and the credit should go to them. And it's our job to set the culture or, or to set the parameters for what we hope our culture is. Mm -hmm. And then to just let things grow and let things be. Right. Right. So I have, since you mentioned practice earlier, I have a couple of just nerd basketball coaching questions for you. 
How do you usually start practice? Um, probably two things we try to do every day. One, um, we stole from Bob McKillop at Davidson. We, we start every practice with something we call, um, we've called it different things over the years, either a, a talk and teach or like uh, they called it alert and ready. So just something at the very beginning of practice where it's just five minutes and we're kind of walking through or, or talking through a situation. So today we're going to walk through um, and talk through just, just our details and executing baseline out of bounds. So sometimes it might be an execution. Um, and then as the year goes on and, and our execution doesn't change a whole lot, we'll even talk through different scenarios or, or rules just so our guys have a deeper understanding of the rule book. Um, you know, for instance, one, one thing we worked on already was how to uh, like how to save a ball that's flying out of bounds you know, where to throw it to, who needs to come in and help that person out. Can you call a timeout in the air? Do you have to have a foot on the ground? Just little details of all the, the situations that this game will throw at you. So we start with something to kind of get their minds going when they're probably most ready for that. And then um, this year was, was probably the, the, our, our big project um, through all of last offseason was to revamp our warm-up. And we kind of thought that the best way to do it was got 15, 20 minutes where we're just repping out the, what we value the most in terms of just habits. So we're really trying to build habits, just have a little different face to it every day, but a um, bunch of different form and balance shooting is one spot, ball handling, obviously um, some sort of pivot and passing, and then um, a finishing thing. We, we think th those four skills they can all look different in how they're executed every day, but those things, you know, if we, we, we dedicate just a little bit of time every single day, come January, come February, those are going to help us win some ball games. So that, that's about the first 20, 25 minutes of practice every day. So today you said you're going to talk through, I love it. And today you're going to talk through baseline out of bounds. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that look like? What, what specifically are you going to say or ask? And what are the things you're hoping to hear? So, and it's honestly like for this, for today, it's yesterday we put in the play so that yesterday they got the X's and O's and then today they'll get the details in the execution. Um, and so something that we do is if I'm the person taking the ball out of bounds, I have to stand on the floor and, and I have to, I, I can't step out of bounds and then ask for the ball until I see the other four guys with their hands on their knees. So there's a visual cue from all four other guys to put their hands on their knees. And then just from a basketball perspective, if you put your hands on your knees, your, you know, your head is at waist level, that defender can't get into you and crowd you. Where if you're standing straight up, they can take your space. Where if your hand's on your knees, there's at least two feet between your feet and theirs. And then as soon as we start the play, you can use that space to cut off without resistance. So um, once the inbounder sees those four guys, that's their signal. And then when he steps out of bounds to receive the basketball on the give of the basketball, um, from the official to that player, then we start our cuts. So there's no, you know, taking it, smacking it and, and that type of thing. Yeah. There, there's two big visual cues that, um, that we rely on, um, that again, need time and attention to teach and for our younger guys to learn and, and pick up on. Um, so a lot of it is, yeah, some of those finer details that, uh, that can really make or break the execution of a play before it even starts. I love that. I love that detail about hands on the knees and that ends up giving you space. Mm -hmm. So you want the inbounder to literally just wait to be on the court within the lines waiting yep. so that they cannot receive the ball from the official Yes. until everybody else is set up in the appropriate spot, yep. hands on knees. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it. I see other teams and especially like high school and AAU, you know, the guy walks over to the ref, takes the ball just because he wants it so bad. And then nobody else is in their spots. And then, you know, now they're the ref set like two, three, and they, you know, it's a cluster. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're really detailed and diligent about some of our execution. Um, when we get to it. What's a, what's a drill or what's a teaching point for being on balance when you're shooting? Honestly, I think the biggest thing, um, 
that we work on is, is not necessarily a lot of people think your pre-shot balance is really important, but we do a lot of drills that emphasize how you land, which then proves that you were on balance during the shot. Cause you can start on balance shoulder width, but then as you're going up, you might be turning in the air, twisting in the air, landing on one foot, landing with your weight leaning backwards. So we'll do one little drill where we'll shoot it. And then when you come down, you kind of have to have like two or three little almost bunny hops on your toes to where now you're engaging in something physically that forces you to be on balance all the way through the shot and after the shot. Um, so yeah, that's just, just a little one there that, um, yeah, I've got a, I could probably write a book between me and my brothers on all the little shooting drills that we either made up or came across that, that we think, um, yeah, find some good value there. You mentioned fun earlier and, and having fun at practice. And I think that's another big misconception about playing on a team, being a part of a team, coaching a team. Is it, it, and traditionally it has been, I think, especially in, in football and men's basketball, it's been, it has to be a grind. It has to be tough. And what I learned as a coach was if, if the head coach is having a good day at practice, it's hard to have a bad practice. You know, if, if the head coach is in a good mood and having fun, obviously getting your work in, that that's the, the best um, attitude for the head coach to come into practice with, not, hey, this is a battle. These are the troops. We got to get ready for war. Two things come to mind when you talk about fun. And, and actually, fun is actually one of our three core values. Um, the, the, the three core values that actually our players chose for our program, not me, but our players chose love, fun, and self-growth. Um, and those three things we, we try to, you know, infuse into as many different areas of our program as possible. And um, in that core value selection process, we actually got into a pretty heated debate among the players about whether to choose joy or fun. And, you know, they're, they're very, very similar, but I think at the end of the day, our guys sided with fun just because it brought them back to why they fell in love with the game of basketball when they were six, seven, eight, nine years old. And at that point, how much of a dream it would be to play college basketball. And I think maybe in their minds, there was something just a little bit maybe deeper or more, um, you know, there's joy at the end of this journey as opposed to just fun throughout. And, uh, and I think, um, yeah, that, that's something that we, we try to do and, and make it a part of every day as opposed to, hey, work and then you can have fun. Well, it's basketball. It should be it should be fun. I was listening to a podcast, too, with um, Doc Rivers, and I think he said that he never called it practice when he was growing up. We're, we're going down to play. You know, and I think that's that's something that I think just sends a different message about what, what we're doing here. And um, while, hey, we're, we're trying to win and we're going to compete really hard and, and work hard and, um, you know, try to achieve all those goals. But if you don't have fun while you're doing it, it's going to be a long, hard, you know, season and, and career or, you know, 30 year coaching journey, like you mentioned. Exactly. And that's right. You play basketball. That, that's the word we use. So fun, play, joy. How, how much insight do, do the players have to do the, does the group mind of the players have that they came up with those three words for what they want with the program? You, you and the assistant coaches could sit around for a month brainstorming and not come up with three, three, three words that are so focused um, related and kind of fit perfectly. Right. And, and it fits perfectly for that group. And I think mm, right. they're the ones doing it. And, and it's that process of, of choosing core values. We'll probably do every three or four years, um, especially as, you know, just classes come and go and, and the dynamic changes um, and personalities change within the program. Um, so we'll, we'll select and, and reselect every, every couple of years. Um, but yeah, that, that's what those, those players chose because, they're the ones in the locker room and it's, it's up to them what they want that to feel like. I can't just tell them, Hey, here's what I believe. And you have to stick to it. Um, you know, Hey, what, what do you guys think? What do you guys believe? And, and what do you want to make that locker room look like and feel like? Um, 
and all of your interactions to, to amount to be every day in that locker room. Um, so we, we do try to put a lot of as much opportunity for them to make some of those decisions and, and put ownership in their hands and responsibility in their hands. Um, because at the end of the day, right, I'm just the one choosing a little bit of playing time, drawing up a couple drills and, you know, having an, an idea of X's and O's wise where we want to start, but so much more of it is, is up to them. And then we try to honor and respect that. And, and through that, put a lot of the decisions in their hands. That's a great point. So what do you see your role as, as the head coach? So the best analogy um, that I've seen is, and especially in terms of kind of giving, giving up ownership of a lot of things is, um, is you kind of look at a battleship, right? And then you've got the crow's nest that's way up top. And I think that's where I see myself and our staff. We're, we're just up there. Um, we've, you know, for, for lack of a better metaphor, we've kind of navigated through these seas before and we're able to be up there and kind of tell you what's coming. But, you know, we, we can come up with a game plan, map out a, a strategy of where we think we want to go. But at the end of the day, all we're doing is giving you words and all of those guys um, have different roles in the bottom of the ship. Some get to do the fun stuff like shoot the cannons and, and get all the attention, all the glory. Other guys got to be in the way bottom, you know, doing all the dirty work and, and it changes year to year and, and with your role and as you evolve, but um, they're the ones doing all the work. And, and, and sometimes this is a scary thought for a coach that you can be up in the crow's nest and bark orders or give advice and they don't have to listen to you, right? They're the ones that do the work, steer the ship and put in the effort. And if they don't wanna put in the effort, they don't have to, all you can do is talk. And I think that's, that's kind of how I view just my relationship or, or perspective as a coach is my job is just to best give the best advice that I'm professionally and personally qualified to give and let them steer the ship and, and make the ultimate decisions but also make them aware of that too. We do try to even go through that analogy with them. Like, Hey, this is, this is kind of your program and this is your ship. We're going to give you advice, but it's up to you guys, you know, how well you want to take that and what you want to do with it to, um, to hopefully end up where we want to go. Does it ever become overwhelming because you have the basketball side of things, strategy, teaching points, uh, X's and O's, you have the big picture of the program. And then, and this was my experience as both a teacher and a coach, there is the human side of it in terms of sometimes a crisis happens. Sometimes there's something going on in a player's personal life. Sometimes a player's dealing with something and they're looking to you to provide guidance, advice, support, et cetera. And, and I always felt as a teacher and as a coach, the range of things that responsible is not the right word, but I can't think of the, the, a better one that you're responsible for, or that you interface with is so vast. You can never be excellent at every single facet of it. Does it, does it get overwhelming for you? All the things that are required at times. Yeah. Especially when, when I, as I've transitioned now the last two years from, from an assistant coach to a head coach, um, you go from really, and, and the previous head coach did a great job of at least including me in, in almost everything we had to do, but it, it goes from a, uh, you're looking at the same problem, but rather than kind of give advice, now you're making the final decision. Um, and a lot of those, just, yeah, your brain just only has so much capacity to make decisions. So like, you know, just little things of, you know, hey, hey what, do you, what do you want three on three teams today to be for this specific drill at this specific time? And I, I don't know. Like, I just give a lot of that to my assistants. There's, and, there's no bandwidth left. Yeah, and certain things. And honestly, for practice, I, I usually have it for that. But for other things, like where do we want our pregame meal to be? Like, let the guys decide or you decide. Like, just little things like that. And um, I think the, the best answer kind of to that question that that has at least helped me get through, especially the last year and a half when COVID has been kind of crazy. And we, my wife and I brought a son into the world, um, is having a really good support staff. 
Um, and so I've got, I've got two assistants that have been with me for the last two years, uh, Devin Price and, and Stu Hartenstein that have been unbelievable. And when I missed practice for a full week to be at home, I, I did really one, one of the best signs for kind of for me as a coach where I knew I was doing the right thing. And also that I knew the program with the players and these coaches were good hands is well, one day I looked at my watch and it's like, Oh, we just finished practice an hour ago. I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that kind of we had practice because I was able to be there with my wife and my son. And I just trusted those guys so much that, you know, it's in good hands. And again, I don't have to be there in order for a good practice to happen. You know, I, I trust what we've been working on with those guys. So um, I think having a good support system and, and guys you can rely on to, to export some of those decisions or at least spread some of that, that stress out uh it's super been super helpful for me what are the things you look for when you're hiring an assistant coach and what does that process look like um i think honestly it it changes for everybody but for me i'm i'm uh i'm kind of a dreamer and a like a, a vision type guy and so I, for for me i need a, a detail organized person to kind of um fill in the blanks when i'm either maybe you know too too pie in the sky or um or every now and then like hey sully let's slow down a little bit like you know you're yeah you're you're in year three and hey we're we're in year one with these nine freshmen like let's slow it down so i think just just somebody that compliments you and your strengths um and um almost going back to our original thing when when i when I know and understand, and I've done, tried to do a lot of work in, in my own self-awareness about what I'm good at and, and what I lack. And then when you can get somebody to fill in those blanks. Um, and for me, that's a, a detail, uh, very organized person where I can sometimes be um, maybe just a little bit too visionary, I guess, is the easiest way to put it where, hey, I want to go, but, you know, we got to take certain steps to, to get there. What does positive coaching mean to you? I think the, just the intersection, and this will probably sound a lot like uh, what Dr. Sullivan said, uh, who I know pretty well, um, but the intersection. So Do, of, Do, Dr. Sullivan is, is your, Greg Sullivan is your father, who I interviewed for the podcast, who's the director of the um, positive coaching and leadership master's program at University of Missouri. Yeah. So again, I'm really fortunate to have, you know, Really, the, the, the two people that I've probably been influenced by the most have been, you know, A, my father, who's done a lot of work um, in, in the positive coaching, positive psychology realm. And then the previous head coach here, who was just the ultimate relationship and culture builder. Um, and so when I lean into those two, uh, I think it's just, yeah, the, the positive coaching is, is when you're just, you're after the ultimate well-being of the person um, and kind of honoring that while also, um, you know, really being demanding of them as people and as athletes. And I think kind of holding those two in the balance, being really supportive of the person while also being really demanding of, of their potential kind of go hand in hand. And you're always pushing those two against each other um, in an effort to kind of move, move that person and the team forward. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting balance. What are some things, maybe one or two things that you do with your program that you think are a little bit different or maybe make you unique things maybe um, other programs aren't doing? So I, I think there's, there's probably a, a number maybe at the division one level that have the staffing for it, but at least at our level in terms of, you know, small college and high school and stuff like that, I, I think we put probably as much time as anybody into um, film statistics and, and some deeper analytics and mostly in a way that we can be really positive coaches, if that makes sense. So, so what we try to do is kind of uh, for, for every live drill we do in practice, four on four, five on five, we film and stat everything. Just so throughout the course of the season, we have, you know, full library, 70, 80 practices of raw stats, points, rebounds, assists, steals, field goal percentage, all that stuff. And then we also keep track of a number of um, effort-based statistics. 
Um, so like we keep track of, we want, we want to play at a pretty fast pace offensively. And so we keep track on every transition opportunity. We keep track of our guys effort on how they run the floor. And so with a lot of these, what we call hard stats, you know, points, rebounds, assists, and some of these kind of soft stats, which are a little bit objective on our behalf to, to determine whether or not guys are, we, we chart running the floor, we chart rebounding effort. Um, we chart a couple other hustle stats um, that we find value to. And um, with some of those hard and soft data, we can produce a ton of feedback for our guys. And almost in a way, to some degree that takes our own personal bias out of it. Like, Hey, here's the film, here's the stats. And now for me and you as a player, we can use a positive relationship to get those better. Where I feel like a lot of times it's the player that is just constantly working to um, appease the coach who is also constantly dissatisfied with the player you know it's almost like the player versus the coach or the player or the coach versus the team you're not practicing hard enough you're not doing well enough and it's we try to create as many objective measurements to kind of take almost take some emotion out of it at least on the basketball side of things so that we can pour it into the person and now it's my job as a coach if, if you know if your numbers aren't good enough let's figure out how to get them better um, and kind of approach it from that way with a little different perspective, um, if, if that makes sense. It, it does. And I love that it's centered around relationships first. I think that traditional coaching, as I've thought about it, and uh, so I, I wrote a memoir about coaching called Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. And as I was writing the book, really reflecting on what coaching is. Sorry if you can hear that hammering. I'm, I'm in New York City and there's a the apartment above mine that's doing some construction. No so traditional coaching, in my opinion, is rooted in obedience, that more important than anything else is that the player must, quote unquote, respect and be obedient, respect, meaning obedient to the head coach. Just the other day, I saw a clip of Trent Dilfer, who's a former NFL quarterback, and I guess he's a high school coach now, I think, in Tennessee, mm -hmm. and he was literally physically grabbing a player on the sideline and, and pushing him backwards and physically forcing him to sit down on the bench and then pointing at him, stay, sit, like almost like it's a dog, right? And, but it's rooted in that model of more important than anything else is that you do exactly what I say when I say it. And if you don't, it's, there's going to be the threat of anger and or even potentially violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we, we run as far away from that as we possibly can, you know, and, uh, and yeah. try to about, um, you know, even in practice, it's, we're, we're for drills, we'll have a standard for everything. You know, when we do our defensive drills today, we'll, we'll do, we're working on our ball screen defense and we'll give both teams 10 possessions. And the goal is to get, you know, a certain um, efficiency rating of those 10 possessions. So, so that's the standard, right. And now as a coach, it's my job to help them get that standard. So it's me and the team against the scoreboard or the standard or the opponent, as opposed to, you know, I like to your point, I grew up in so many practices where, you know, we're just playing and then the coach is not satisfied with how we're playing. And then he just yells at you. And it's like, well, you know, I didn't know that, you know, you were in a bad mood today. So your standard is different every day um, as opposed to like, Hey, let's, yeah, let's you and I work together against something that is objective, measurable, um, and we can, you know, attack as a unit. Because when it comes to game time, it's no longer the player against the coach like it like it can be in your tra old traditional practices. It's, it's the players and the coaches against the other team. And sometimes when it is about respect and obedience and just the coach's daily standard that can change, um, you, you get a lot of clash and now all of a sudden on game day, you're supposed to be on the same team. I think that that could be, you know, it's, that's tough. Right. Or, or, or even worse and even worse, if you don't perform on game day, there's going to be physical punishment mm -hmm. afterwards. So, you know, as I grew as a coach, I came to see my job as a coach, especially on game day to lower stress levels, to, mm -hmm. to 
try to get everybody to feel as relaxed as possible. In my opinion, we perform at our best when we feel prepared and relaxed at the same time. And I think a lot of coaches get the prepared part right, but but they don't get the relaxed part right. Yeah, I was really fortunate to, um, my college coach was, was a phenomenal practice coach. And uh, it was kind of a running joke against um, a bunch of my, um, with all my college friends that were not on the basketball team. And so much so that they, they uh, whether it's appropriate to share or not, they, they had a, a drinking game where they would watch us play on the road and if ever my college coach sat, stood up out of his chair, you know, they'd have to, to take a sip of their beer. And, and just because he was so just kind of stoic and relaxed and like, hey, my, my work is done during practice. And then every now and then, if I need to make a sub, call a play or, or make an adjustment, I'll call a timeout and, and kind of do it that way. But he really um, was a huge influence for me to just kind of remain, hey, game day is when the players play and we can make some adjustments. And practice is really where I get my teaching and, and uh, instruction done and kind of let it be and, and let them play on, on game day. How did, I love that. How did that make you feel as a player on game day? Um, just like you said, relaxed and, and confident and comfortable. And his pregame speeches were not rah-rah or, you know, really just super intense and feisty. He was like, hey, here are the three keys we talked about in preparation on defense. Here, here are the three keys on offense. Let's go out and execute. Um, and uh, I'm just like, okay, sounds pretty simple. We'll just go out there and make, make some plays. Um, you know, we, we were fortunate and he was fortunate. This is what I've learned in coaching is he went into most nights with the better talent and, and that, that helps a ton when, you know, when you've got more talent than the other team most nights. And so that, that's helped my recruiting efforts tremendously, but you know, if you do that well and then prepare your guys well on game nights, you just kind of let them hopefully go out there and shine. So that's, that's the goal. Right. I think, I think, halftime speeches, pregame speeches are so overrated. And that's something that's celebrated in popular culture and films and stuff. But in the real world, it's exactly what you're saying. This is what we prepared for. These are the three things we need to focus on. When I was in my later years as a coach, I would at halftime, I would kind of walk to half court. So in the KBA, in Namibia, the professional league where I coached, we didn't have locker rooms that we went to. We'd just be on the bench and I would walk to half court or to the baseline and just stand there and think about what I saw, mm-hmm. narrow it down to the top three things we needed to do. And then of those three things, pick the most important one with right. one minute left, go back, talk to the guys and just repeat over and over again, whatever that one thing was. And I think we overthink or, or popular culture celebrates this idea of you need to get the emotions up or you need to get the anger up or you need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, you really just need to keep it as simple as possible during game, during the game. Yeah. And, and that's one thing I've, I've learned um, as, you know, in the transition into a head coach is if you talk all day long and all practice long, they're, they're not going to listen. So I think, especially on the practice floor, I've really tried to um, be cognizant of how often I'm stopping practice for different things. Um, so sometimes you almost feel obligated to talk as a head coach, but I think sometimes silence is, is pretty powerful or just kind of letting them play through some things and giving them the opportunity to correct themselves, correct each other, um, where you know that, that requires me to, even if I feel like I really want to say something, um, just kind of letting it be and, and seeing if it works itself out. But, but finding your voice and finding the right amount of it, I think is something that uh, has been a, a fun challenge for me the last you know year and a half. If you can get to that point where the team and the, and the team leaders or the guys who've been there for three or four years are making those teaching points before you even have to say anything or before you even have to consider, should I interject here you're in a really good space and, and that's something I learned from from the previous head coach coach Galoni before me he, he always said that 
his ultimate dream um, on, on a game night was to purposely get himself thrown out of the game and then just watch from the locker room and just watch and, and know that everything was going to go smoothly. And I think uh, I, somebody said that about uh, one of the NBA commentators said that about Rondo the other day, just paid him a huge compliment where I think every coach that was able to, um, to coach Rondo would have felt like, Hey, I can take the night off and, and Rondo is going to be that coach on the floor. So whether it's one guy or, or hopefully just a collective culture where again, it's, it's a self led ship. And, you know, if they need me to talk from the crow's nest, I can say it, but if they don't, then they don't. And yeah, that, that's the ultimate goal. I love it. You mentioned earlier tracking, tracking effort, tracking things in practice. Mm-hmm. And I love that because I've always felt what gets measured is what gets done. Do you have an all-in-one metric that you use when assessing players? What are some of the more esoteric um, stats besides the basic counting stats that you're looking at, whether it's things you're keeping during practice or things in the game? So, so we don't have an all-in-one metric. Um, I actually, coaching so funny. So I hated math in high school and college. Was not good at it, didn't, didn't love it. But then as the analytics side of basketball has grown, I've just been so fascinated by how you can try to create, yeah, objective measurements out of, you know, pretty complex, um, vague ideas, right? And so um, what we do specifically is keep track of a few different areas that we think are the most important, um, especially early in the year and establishing how we want to play. Um, and the first thing is, is with pace. And so, yeah, we, we keep track of um, a running effort on every made or missed basket, how quickly we run down the floor to our, you know, uh, transition spots. And then we keep track of um, rebounding both offensively and defensively. We've got a pretty specific offensive rebounding system um, that we picked up from uh, a coach and a team in Australia where they, they, they send all five guys to the glass, but in a very specific and strategic way that doesn't it's not just chaos all five guys are going crazy there's a lot of strategy and teaching to it and so we'll keep track again on the lift of every shot we'll pause the film and then you know give a check mark for everybody who you know kind of does their job on that specific shot um so 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 as to give us the best opportunity for an offensive rebound and set our transition defense those are kind of tied together um and then the last thing is the last one is just defensive rebounding. You know, I think of all the major statistics, just owning the most possessions um, and having the, the best A, turnover margin and B, rebounding margin is probably the most significant way to, again, through effort, create more possessions. You know, you don't, it's not a luck thing. Ball bounces your way and like, hey, let's, let's go to the boards every time the way we need to and let's rebound every time. And that can be done whether you're 5'9 or 6'10. If you do your job every time, that's all we're creating, whether or not you get the rebound. Um, but establishing those habits early on, uh, and that, that's what we track, uh, at least right now. Those, those are the right. big. It's, it's about process, not outcome. The, the idea of possessions, that, that's music to my ears. It was the great Dean Smith, I think, who said, possessions are the currency of basketball. And, yep. and once you, you get that, I think it helps you focus on what wins games. The, the Bulls, the 96 Bulls that win 72 and 10, I think people underestimate the impact of Dennis Rodman. They think, well, Jordan worked that summer in the Space Jam tent and perfected his post-up game and turnaround jumper. But it was having Dennis Rodman, who was elite. I think the other thing, you mentioned offensive rebounding and defensive rebounding. I think a lot of things... A lot of things, uh, something a lot of people don't understand is those are two incredibly different skill sets. And by and large, somebody who's a great defensive rebounder is not a great offensive rebounder, vice versa. And Robin's one of the few players in NBA history who was elite, top 1%, one-tenth of 1% at both. Mm -hmm. So he was securing the defensive possession, and he was giving the team, the Bulls, more chances on offense by his elite offensive rebounding. So increase, so, so maintaining possession and increasing the number of possessions. 
Right. And that, that just allows for on any given night, you know, more flexibility to, to weather the storm of an off shooting night or, or mm-hmm. a shooting night from the other team. When, when it's all said and done, you have 80 possessions to their 70, you know, you, you can, yep. there's more wiggle room there. So. You got more money to spend possessions of the currency. Exactly. Okay. You mentioned something that's fascinating to me. You send five guys to the offensive glass. So normally that is, especially in this pace and space era, that's p- potentially a recipe for disaster because you don't have people getting back. I know that somebody referenced Doc Rivers. I think Rivers said, you know, about halfway through his tenure with the Celtics, they just stopped going for offensive rebounds because they'd rather just lock down the, they'd rather stop the offensive fast break and get into their defense. So can you, can you to, to the extent you feel comfortable with without giving away any trade secrets, break that down for me, five guys um, going for the offensive rebound. So, so just generally speaking, I think over the last 10, 10, 12, 15 years, just the, the globalization of basketball has allowed for a, a, a high academic division three institution to be influenced by a, uh, an NBL team in Australia. And so now film is out there, data is out there. Like there are no secrets anymore. It's just finding the best thing that works for you and your personality and, and your players. But um, so, yeah, we found out about um, it's a system called tagging up. And it's essentially you, you, yeah, you send rather than sending all five back and kind of allowing them to just stampede on down the floor. Like, yes, you're back there, but man, they could come downhill right at you and guarding Russell Westbrook with a full head of steam at you can be just as tough as, as any other strategy. Um, But how we approach it is we'll send all five guys and not necessarily to the glass, but at least to the, like, the point where their man has to block them out. And so it's kind of twofold, right? So we, we put all five guys to make their man block them out and again, play rebounding percentages. Most rebounds happen in the paint or around the nail, the elbows and kind of that logo area. So we're trying to put as many of our bodies into their backs around that space. And then anything that comes in there is hopefully a 50, 50 ball that we can tip out. So the first, the first part of it is, yeah, putting all five guys um, to make them block out and see if we can get um, increase our offensive rebounding percentage. Then the second thing is if you, let's say if I, um, if I tag up and, and crash the offensive boards and you have to block me out, if I do that, you know, eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, if you have to block out to end every possession, are you in any position to start thinking about transition offense? No. So you kind of stop it from the other end of, yeah, rather than getting back where, Hey, they can shot goes up. They know they don't have to block out. They can, what we call leak and peak. They can start to leak up the sideline, peak ahead and, and be ready to grab that outlet and go where now we make you block out. You are, you're worried about us not getting a no board. And finally, when you secure it, you're probably in the paint or darn near close to it. And you're in no position to attack um, going the other way. And because you just blocked me out and we, there was physical touch there. Now I'm just matched up to you and there's no worrying about, Oh, I got to sprint back to mine or cross sides of the floor to get back to a matchup. Boom. If, if you blocked me out, you're my matchup going the other way and everything is set. And so I, I think of all different ways you can teach transition defense, this We've always been good offensive rebounding and terrible transition defense, but we put this uh, in for the first time and our offensive rebounding honestly stayed right the same, but our transition defense, um, both in the rate at which teams were, were shooting it in transition and their efficiency, both of them decreased significantly. So that's where we found the most advantage to sending five to the glass was not necessarily on the O boards, but in transition, um, yeah, because we made them block out and there was accountability to, to matchups. That's so interesting. So basically, you're forcing the other team to make a mental switch from shot goes up, let's fast break, to shot goes up, I need to find my man and, mm-hmm. and box him out. So are you playing generally half-court man-to-man defense then? Yeah, so we'll, we'll once, um, let's say if, if, yeah, if, I, if you block me out and I'm there and you get the rebound, now I'm just in a full court. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, we don't pressure a whole lot um, with our like special half court, three quarters court. 
Yeah, but you're already yeah. you're there, and then you just stay there, and then yeah. just kind of zigzag the ball as it heads down the other way, just to slow down and contain their their break that way. That's so interesting. So, what do you do um, for defensive rebounds? All five guys block out. Well, in practice, yeah, we like the tag up system makes you do it in practice every day. Mm -hmm. Oh, so of course, right? Yeah. So I, I honestly That's so interesting. The residual benefit of that is. Uh, yeah, is creating good blockout habits because if you don't do it, then yeah, the offense is going to take advantage of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've gotten into the last couple of years is, is Gracie jujitsu and somebody was making the point just kind of similar to what you're making, which is with the advent of being able to watch videos from all over the world, um, the things are evolving so much quicker, you know, moves and counter moves are evolving so much quicker. So that is fascinating because, you know, I stopped coaching about four years ago and, you know, that like, just when you said that, like my antenna went up, like five guys crashing. That's so, because it used to be, you would definitely send at least two or three and then fast breaking became such a off potent offensive weapon. Like I said, Doc Rivers was like, we just stopped doing it all together. But now it's like it's evolved again, and these permutations that you can learn from a from a team in in Australia. It's so cool. And I think a lot of it too is is um, just based on on your players and your level. I, I I would struggle to think that you could get an NBA team to buy into that much effort for eighty two games. Like I, right. I do think that that would just be very physically taxing and demanding and and kind of tough. Um, but you know, for us, we got. We're, we're pretty deep we're, we don't rely on you know one or two stars like the nba game does and and um yeah so we'll we'll play eight nine ten guys and stick to this system and we only have to do it for for you know 30 hopefully 30 plus nights as opposed to you know three out of five nights and you know right. you understand the nba season is tough so i don't know if it'll make its way all the way up there but i think in certain professional leagues and and definitely a lot of college and high school levels it, it can be really um pretty beneficial so and it, it's so interesting that it, that the effect it had was slowing down the fast break which as you explained it makes sense okay i gotta let you get out of here let me ask one more question so we're kind of talking we've talked a bit about positive coaching and and emotional intelligence i think it's clear that you have a, a huge dose of that so how do you given that how do you handle players coming to you about playing time First, I think one thing that I've been able to tap into is it's just my own experience. You know, I know exactly how they feel and where they're coming from. You know, I was I was fortunate to be an All-American for a single year. But if you look at the rest of the career, it was a roller coaster. I think I probably earned a starting spot, then lost it, then was at the end of the bench, then worked my way back and, you know, all over the spectrum. So I think I think the first thing is I, I, I try to tap into, OK, he, he's not he's not coming at me thinking that I'm doing something wrong to him. He just wants to play. And that was me a couple of years ago. Um, and so I think that experience helps. And then secondly, I think we, we try to provide again, as much data and evidence to, as to why they're in the role that they are, as opposed to just my opinion as a coach. And cause I, I, I just don't feel First, uh, Denison is a really high academic place, and our guys ask why, why, why all the time, and as they should, right? They they just they're 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 smart, critical thinkers, and they challenge everything. So that that's challenged me in a good way, but also like I, I'm I'm a young head coach. I I know that I don't have all the answers, and so I just can't sit here and say, well, this is my opinion, and you just got to stick with it, and that's the way it is. Like that's where a lot of our effort-based things comes into play our stats, our analytics. And from there, we can look that at the totality of his kind of basketball profile and then see where he needs to grow, why he needs to grow in that way and how we can move him from, you know, bench player to a role player or a role player to a starter. Um, and I think we make that known amongst everybody. Hey, I'm, I'm working with the bench player to get him a role on the floor. But I'm also working with the role player to get him a spot in the starting lineup. And we're just trying to move everybody forward to move us forward in the best way that we can. Um, and, and yeah, just trying to rely on, 
as little of me and my opinion and as much on, hey, how, how can you and I figure out how to do this together? Because I'd love to play you too. You know, I, I'd love to play right. 50 guys and make everybody happy, but that's not always the case. So how can you thrive in this role and how can we work to expand that role you know, maybe at some point during this season or, or just prepare you for, for down the road when, you're, when your number gets called. Coach Sullivan, thank you so much. Yep. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. That was my interview with Coach Chris Sullivan at Denison University. Go Big Red. This is Ben Guest. You can find all of my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. Have a great day.